Okay, this is Spirit of the Antichrist. So we are going to spend the next several months probably in a series that uh, is going to cover end times events. And I wanted to start out this series over the next few weeks anyway by looking at the end times through the lens of deception. And in order to do that, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning in the garden, which is what we're going to do. I don't know if we'll get there today, but uh, certainly uh, today or next week, uh, and talk about Satan's M.O. His M.O. is deception. But there's certainly a lot going on in the world. If you look around and uh, kind of look at the headlines and see all that's happening, you recognize that there's got to be something major at play. There's got to be something... Uh, beyond this world happening. And then you look at Scripture, which we're going to do, and you begin to see, yeah, there is. Life is about more than what you can see and feel and touch. Uh, there is a cosmic struggle going on between good and evil. And it's been that way since Satan fell from heaven. Lucifer fell like lightning when he, because of his pride, thought he could take over uh, God's realm and be God himself. And that didn't work out too well for him, and so he was cast to the earth, and ever since then, Satan's been trying to take over the earth. And so I'm calling this the spirit of the Antichrist, the gathering cloud of deception. The Bible warns that it's the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. What does that mean? We're going to look at that in just a second. We're also warned in the Bible that deception is going to get worse and worse with time. In other words, as we get near the end of the age, when Christ comes back to make all things new, deception is going to reach unprecedented heights. Later on in the series, we're going to take a look at the Olivet Discourse, and that's a section of Scripture so named because Jesus preached a message on the top of Mount Olives, on the Mount of Olives, and it's the last message he preached before he was betrayed the next, very next day in the garden. So on Wednesday of Passion Week, Jesus preaches uh, one of his longest messages recorded in Scripture, all about his return and what life will be like in that seven-year period right before he comes back to take the throne as promised him by the prophets. And in that message, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus refers to deception many times. And he warns that as we lead up to his return, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Now that section of scripture is talking about a seven-year period that we're going to get into in this series called the Tribulation. It's variously referred to in scripture as uh, the time of uh, Jacob's trouble, uh, the Great Tribulation, the Tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, uh, the overflowing scourge, uh, the uh, great day of the Lord's wrath or the day of the Lord's wrath. The prophets used a number of names to refer to this seven-year period. But, and that will happen after the church is rescued from this present evil age, Galatians 1.4. But Jesus talks about in that seven-year period, deception is going to reach unprecedented heights. And if that's true, and we also know from Paul's teaching in Timothy that deception is going to get worse and worse, we know that deception is worse today than it was yesterday, and it will be worse tomorrow than it, was, than it is today. So we're going to take a look at several ways that the Antichrist is at work today. The Antichrist, as we shall see in a moment, is a literal, physical human being, uh, talked about throughout Scripture, who will one day 
take the throne for a seven-year period and rule this world in unrighteousness, rule it in great deception, uh, right before Christ comes back. The book of Revelation, for example, talks about uh, at the beginning of the tribulation, a rider on a white horse, Revelation 6.1, who is an imposter. And it comes full circle by Revelation 19 to talk about the one who is, quote, faithful and true, Revelation 19.11, when Christ comes back also on a white horse, this time the real deal. And so as Satan, who is not omniscient and doesn't know God's timetable, is preparing for this incredible deception that's going to sweep the world during the tribulation, he is setting the stage now with deception, even in this present age. And so I want us to take a look at the spirit of uh, deception. And so let's take a look at 1 John chapter 4. This is the, one of the passages that I referenced a moment ago. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Now, in the context, uh, John here is talking about every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. So specifically in that context, he's warning the late first century Christians. Uh, John wrote his epistles in the early 90s, about the same time that he wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, there's some scholars that will say he might have written the epistles a little earlier, maybe in the 80s. Uh, but I think the preponderance of the evidence is that he wrote them in the early 90s. Um, any scholar that suggests that he wrote the book of Revelation and the epistles of John much earlier is not to be trusted. Um, he wrote the book of Revelation for sure in the 90s and probably the epistles within a 10-year time frame of that. And so he was warning in the context that first century, late first century uh, Christian community against anyone who's claiming that Jesus Christ is not God. Now we're going to be talking in the worship hour a little bit later about who is Jesus Christ as we begin a series through the book of Hebrews. Um, but this truth, like all the truths of Scripture, is just as relevant and meaningful and timeless for us today as it was in the first century. Uh, there is a spirit of the Antichrist that is already in the world. Now think about this for a moment. Um, Satan, again, doesn't know God's timetable. And so people will often ask me at, at prophecy conferences, do you believe the Antichrist is alive today? And my answer is always the same, yes. Satan's candidate for the Antichrist is alive in every age. He has his man of the hour picked out, ready to step into that role if the rapture were to happen. Because again, Satan does not know when the rapture is going to happen. The Lord today, in fulfillment of prophecy, could call the church home to meet the Lord in the air and rescue us from this present evil age, thus ushering in the beginning of the end times. And if he did, Satan is ready. And he would step right in, I believe, based on uh, 2 Thess 2 and Daniel chapter 8, that he will actually indwell this future Antichrist. We'll get into that as we go through this study. And he will step in, and that man will rise to prominence and take over the world in a one-world government and rule uh, with unrighteousness and deception and evil and a, a bloodshed and warfare. And so Satan is prepared at any moment. And so he has this spirit of the Antichrist already abounding. Um, and we don't know who that Antichrist may be. We could speculate all day, but obviously it's not ours to know. We'll already be in heaven when the Antichrist is unveiled. Uh, and he will be unveiled, according to Daniel 9.27, when he signs the peace treaty with Israel 
starting the clock ticking on that final seven-year uh, period. Uh, so uh, John, earlier in his epistle, sort of explains what he means when he says the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it's the last hour. Now, this is an important principle to understand when studying Bible prophecy, and that is the meaning of the phrase last hour or last days. Now we tend to think of the phrase last hour or last days, we hear that phrase and we tend to think it's the sort of right one stroke before midnight, that it's right before Christ comes back. But that's not the way the Bible uses that phrase. The phrase the last hour refers to the entirety of the church age. In other words, as if you look at a timetable of human history as unveiled in Scripture, you'll find that we are, in fact, living in the last age prior to the coming of the kingdom. In other words, after the church age, there's nothing left to be fulfilled except all of the kingdom prophecies related to Christ coming back, taking the throne as promised him, uh, David's throne, in the messianic kingdom, and, and ultimately making all things new. Uh, so this is the last hour. So a chart that I'm going to come back to again and again throughout this study, this is an end times chart. When you hear me talk about the last days, we're talking about the present church age, the way the Bible uses that phrase. When you hear me talking about the end times, you're talking about everything that starts with the rapture and goes all the way through to the new heavens and new earth. Basically, the end times is all of the unfulfilled prophecy in Scripture. So we need to remember that one-third of the Bible is prophecy, and half of that has never been fulfilled. So one-sixth of the prophecy relates to future, fulfilled, uh, future prophecies that await fulfillment. So that's the end times. So when I say this is a study of end times Bible prophecy, I mean we're studying everything from the rapture forward, and in this opening series, we're going to talk about setting the stage for that in this present age. How, what are Satan's activities in this present age as he prepares his battle plan in this cosmic struggle with God? So let me kind of walk through this chart with you so you can kind of get some perspective. Obviously, it's not drawn to scale. We are in the church age right now, which is the last days. Okay, And uh, the end times refers to everything that starts with the rapture and goes all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, so if you look over here, uh, uh, let's see, give you a little uh, laser. I don't know if you can see that red laser. But the next great event to which the world looks forward is the rapture. Okay, We'll talk about that in more detail. How many of you have heard of the rapture? Yeah, I would think so in a solid Bible teaching group. Um, but we'll, we'll talk more about that. What is the rapture? By the way, the word rapture is a biblical term. Okay, uh, Harpazo is the Greek term in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, so we'll come back to that. But that rapture, which is imminent, okay, what does imminent mean? Could happen at any moment. Okay, The rapture, the doctrine of imminency is that the rapture can happen at any moment. In other words, there is no prophecy to be fulfilled. You'll notice... Over here, there's nothing on the left of the arrow signifying the rapture on this chart. It's, we're in the church. The rapture could have happened 500 years ago. could have happened 100 years ago. It might happen today. It might not happen for 100 years. 
you know, the Lord doesn't tell us exactly when it's going to happen. No man knows the day or the hour, right? But we do know that when the rapture starts, that starts the clock ticking on the end times events, and prophecies will begin to be fulfilled in rapid succession. The next thing that happens is there is a chaos that unfolds on the earth of unspecified length. We don't know uh, how uh, long it will be. Uh, I have several DVDs out there that kind of address this in more detail, and the book What Lies Ahead has a whole chapter on this. But I believe that after the rapture, comparing Scripture with Scripture, what's going to happen is that a Western, I mean, a Northern alliance is going to try to take advantage of the chaos in the world that was in, caused by the disappearance of millions of people and try to attack Israel. Israel is God's holy land. It's the holy land in three major religions. It is significant throughout the Bible. It's called God's chosen holy land. And it's uh, a northern aggressor is going to try to take control of that land. And then uh, Daniel goes on to tell us that a western alliance is going to form, and that western alliance is going to come in and try to do battle with a northern alliance. And God supernaturally rescues Israel from this northern aggressor. It's called the Battle of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39, all taking place right here in this little gap of time after the rapture. But the Western alliance is led by a man who becomes the Antichrist, and he takes credit for rescuing Israel and, and solving this, saving the world from World War III or IV or whatever it might be by then, right? And so he says, look at me. See, I solved the problem. And he signs this peace treaty. He takes credit, even though God's the one that protected Israel from this northern aggressor. And that peace treaty starts the clock ticking right here, Daniel 9, 27, on this seven-year uh, period. Now, we're going to go into that in much detail in weeks to come, but it's the, a seven-year period that's part of a 490-year plan in Daniel's prophecy. The first 483 years have already been fulfilled actually to the day. We're going to show you how that worked out. It was amazing. Daniel 9 is one of the most profound prophecies in all of the Bible that show the trustworthiness of God's Word. But the final seven years have not been fulfilled yet. So this is the seven-year tribulation. This is when the Antichrist reign of terror will take place. Three and a half years of protection there, you notice, that's for Israel, not on the world. There will be all kinds of uh, evil being perpetrated on the world, but Israel is sort of protected. He doesn't turn his sights on them until the midpoint when, as Jesus talks about, he, he performs uh, the abomination of desolation. That's why he's called, the Antichrist is called the desolator. He sacrifice, does a sacrifice on the altar in the temple, desecrating it. And, uh, and after he does that, then he turns his sights on Israel for the last three and a half years of intense persecution. But after the seven years are up, Christ himself comes back in fulfillment of prophecy, just like he said he would. Uh, he said in Matthew 24, Then the Son of Man will come in all of his glory and sit on the throne of his father David. After the second coming, there's again another 75 day. We do know how long this one will be from Daniel chapter 12. 75 day period. To essentially, we don't know exactly why, but the best speculation seems to be to just clean up all of the, the mess that, that happened at the Battle of Armageddon. Armageddon occurs right when Christ comes back, right here at the second coming. But at the end of that 75 days, this thousand-year reign of Christ begins. Notice that's the millennium, where my pointer is here. But the entire uh, reign of Christ is, is perpetual. A lot of times we talk about the millennial kingdom, and that's a bit of a misnomer because it implies that the kingdom is only a thousand years. But that's not true. Every passage in Scripture that refers to Christ taking the throne says He takes the throne forever. He rules and reigns forever. He shall reign forever and ever, right? 
So the difference between the millennial portion and the eternal state is that the millennial portion of his reign in the kingdom is on the old heaven and the old earth. The eternal state is after the old heaven and old earth are destroyed, God recreates it in sinless perfection and the reign of the Godhead continues. So hopefully that's a, uh, a little bit of a kind of a walkthrough of a chart that we'll come back to uh, frequently. But back to 1 John, again, little children, it is the last hour, which is the church age. We're still living in it today. Only difference between us and John's original audience is that we have 2,000 years of degeneration and worse deception. You think it was bad in John's day, imagine how bad it is today, right? Uh, but he goes on to say, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. Now, the version you see on the screen is the New King James, and I like that the New King James uh, capitalizes Antichrist because it is referring to a future, actual human being prophesied in Scripture who will rule the world at Satan's behest. So he says, you've heard that Antichrist is coming, and that word antichrist is the Greek word antichristos, right? Antichristos. What does that mean? Well, it's used five times in Scripture. And in the first place, it simply means false Christ. Anti meaning false. But it also has the connotation of against Christ. And Satan is both. He is, I mean, the antichrist is both. He is an imposter. Again, Revelation 6.1. And uh, that's why Jesus in Matthew 24, repeatedly says to the future tribulation generation, primarily the nation of Israel, Take heed that no one deceive you. Many will come in my name and claim to be Christ, but don't believe them. So he is a, a false Christ, but he's also against Christ. He's been against Christ since he got kicked out of heaven, right? In fact, the earliest reference to the gospel is in Genesis 3. Did you know that? In Genesis 3... Jesus predicts that the seed of the woman will ultimately defeat the serpent. And the serpent, of course, we know from Revelation is Satan. And so uh, G Satan came. He came to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning. All he knows is how to kill. So what did he do? He came to earth and he killed Adam and Eve. He brought death into the world. Uh, God had warned Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree, because in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh, and uh, Satan went and tempted them. They ate, they died, both physically and spiritually. Uh, now, they were redeemed, ultimately, by God's provision, and so they did not have to die eternally, but they did die physically, and every death since then has been brought about and traces its roots back to Genesis. Paul said in Romans 5.12, Wherefore, by one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death by sin and so death is passed upon all men, because all have sinned, right? It's one of the reasons that we reject, based on a, a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture, the notion of uh, the earth being millions of years old and death happening before creation. You know, uh, secular, atheistic uh, uh, scientists and some creation, so-called creation scientists try to suggest that the earth is millions and some even billions of years old and that you had all these ancient species of, cre of created things, if you're a creation scientist that, who believes this, uh, that ultimately died off and died off and died off, and somewhere along the way, God created man. The problem with that is the Bible says death came only after man's sin. You cannot have millions of years of death and destruction before Adam and Eve. Right? So we believe the Bible, the way it's written in its plain normal sense, that 
Uh, the earth is roughly six to 8,000 years old. So he's against Christ. So Satan, all of his activities from the time he was kicked out of heaven have been centered on the second person of the Godhead, Christ. Remember, Christ is eternal. God eternally exists in three persons. Christ did not come into existence in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. He merely took on human flesh so that in fulfillment of God's plan, he could come and redeem mankind. Remember, Isaiah the prophet predicted that a virgin would conceive and, and have a child. That virgin would be born in sinless perfection. Uh, by the way, the virgin birth is a fundamental standard of orthodoxy to this day. Uh, and it's critical because had Jesus been conceived by any other normal human means rather than by the Holy Spirit, he too, like every man, would have been born in sin. Remember, Romans 5.12 says death comes is passed down from generation to generation because of sin. So uh, Jesus had an earthly mother, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit so that he didn't have that sin. See, sin is in the blood. Do you, do you believe that? You don't become a sinner. Like someone emailed me last week and asked me my view of original sin, not from the church, but from our ministry. And they said, do you believe someone becomes a sinner the first time they sin? I said, absolutely not. You're born a sinner. David said, I was conceived in sin. Uh, Paul said um, in Ephesians 2.1, we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. You sin because you're a sinner. You don't become a sinner because you sin. Right? So we're sinners, and Christ is not a sinner. He never sinned. He was perfect, the perfect God, and fully human, yet fully God. Now, he could have sinned. He had that free choice. Um, he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Right? So Satan's activities have always centered on trying to defeat Christ. So we, went, we already talked about Genesis. You can see through the ages how he again and again tried to stop uh, the Davidic line. Uh, think about uh, in the first century. What did Herod do after uh, Jesus, the Messiah, was born in Bethlehem? He immediately summoned the Magi and he said, I want to know where this baby was born and when he was born. And he didn't get an exact number. So he said, okay, here's my decree. Every baby two years and younger is killed. He was trying to kill baby Jesus. Joseph and Mary, warned by the Lord, fled to Egypt to get out of the range of Herod's reign of terror, and, uh, they, and he was rescued. Uh, again, at the end of Christ's ministry, what happened? Satan indwells Judas, the first instance in Scripture where Satan himself, the prince of demons, indwells an unbeliever. He indwelt Judas. In other words, he knew God's plan. He's read the Bible just like we are. We have. He doesn't believe it, but he's read it. And he tried to preempt it. And he knew that this God-man was God's solution to man's sin problem. And so he said, here's my chance. God has left the realm of heaven. He's come to earth, to my playground. Remember, the, the Bible says the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. Satan is the, the prince of the power of the air. He's the God of this age, the Bible tells us. So this is his playground for now. It will be redeemed someday when Christ comes back to make all things new. And it won't just be a renovation. It will be a complete destruction and rebuilt in sinless perfection. And the Bible thus comes full circle from the pre-fall Edenic state all the way to the new heavens and the new earth, right? But in at the time of Christ's uh, final uh, week on earth, Satan says, here's my chance. I'm not going to leave anything to chance. Uh, I'm not going to delegate this to my legions of demons. I'm going to take the charge of this myself. So he indwells Judas, uses Judas to betray Christ, and ultimately led to Christ's crucifixion. And Satan thus thought, I've won. This is it. But what happened? God, once again, three days later, 
Jesus was raised from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And so Satan, he's already lost the battle. If you can't win when you kill the Messiah, what else can you do? He's tried everything. So for the last 2,000 years, he's just been running around frantically trying all kinds of things to usher in the one world system over and against God's very plainly de declared prophecy. Uh, we've seen this throughout different empires. We saw it in the Roman Empire of the first century. We've seen it in other terrible dictators. In modern times, we could uh, go back to you know Stalin and then Hitler. Uh, there have been multiple times when he's tried to usher in a one world government. He tried with the League of Nations. He tried with the United Nations after World War II. We're going to talk about all of that. And by the way, he's still trying today. There is a group of Luciferian human beings whom Satan is collaborating with in his Luciferian conspiracy to usher in a one-world government. That's his plan. It's been his plan all along. The Bible talks about that. Um, and so uh, I love this quote by William Newell, uh, just a great uh, man of God uh, from the last century. He was a pastor of the Moody Church uh, there. He's also the one that wrote At Calvary. That great hymn, mercy there was great and grace was free, pardon there was multiplied to me. He's the author of that. But he said, all satanic activities are carried out under the double motive of ambition to rule and be worshipped and hatred toward the one whom God has chosen to take the kingdom that Satan has usurped. Antichrist. False Christ. Antichrist. Against Christ. He's both. He wants to be ruled and worshipped, but he also wants to defeat the, one, the rightful heir to the throne, Jesus Christ. So uh, there are some key passages in Scripture that uh, we will talk about in uh, the weeks to come that give us information about the Antichrist. One of them is Daniel 7, and this, if you recall, is where Daniel has the vision of the four beasts. And in the midst of that vision, he talks about the little horn. Little Horn is the Antichrist, the future world dictator that will rise to power after the rapture and during the tribulation. Then, of course, I've already mentioned Daniel 9. That's where the desolator or the one who makes desolation, the abomination of desolation, signs the peace treaty. That, again, is referencing the Antichrist. Later in chapter 11, we get, starting in verse 36, some pretty detailed information about the man. Uh, Specifically, things like uh, that he denies the religion of his fathers or that he has no regard for women. Uh, I take that, as do many others, as a reference to him being homosexual. So why do you think we're seeing such an attack on gender and on you know, the, the gender surrender movement, I call it, and the, uh, just this elevation even among uh, Republican-appointed Supreme Court justices supporting gay marriage and gay rights and all of that, because it's setting the stage for what's going to happen with this uh, man uh, of sin. Uh, so we read a lot about uh, him there in Daniel uh, chapter 11. He, he's going to deny the gods of his fathers. That's another reason why we know from Scripture that the future Antichrist is not going to be Muslim. You know, at any given time in human history, there are key advocates of Satan that he is using to advance his deceptive agenda, whether that was communism whether that was the Roman Empire and Nero, which we're going to talk about in our second hour, uh, whether it's uh, Islam today. Make no mistake, Islam is a formidable foe. They're, you know, they're, they're not uh, on our side, right? 
Um, but they're not the ultimate enemy. Right? The Antichrist is not going to be a Muslim. He's going to be a pluralist. He's going to deny any religion and welcome all religions. Think about it. If he's going to get the whole world to worship him, he's not going to be able to be Muslim because there are a lot of non-Muslims in the world that are non-believers. So he's going to be a pluralist. He's going to claim that all religions are equal. Come worship me. I'm, I, you, you have a place here. That kind of thing. Right? So we get a lot of that information from Daniel 11. 2 Thess 2, coming to the New Testament, is a key passage that gives us a lot of information about the Antichrist and some new names, by the way. We learn in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 uh, that the Antichrist is also called the man of sin or the son of perdition. We also learn a little bit more about his great deception. That's why I subtitled this series The, the Gathering Cloud of Deception because there is no greater deceiver than Satan himself and he is going to empower and quite possibly indwell the future Antichrist. See, there are only two times in, in human history, according to the Bible, when, again, Satan said, I don't want to delegate this task. It's too important. I'm going to take it myself. We know without question that he did this with Judas in conjunction with the first advent of Christ. So think about it. In all of human history, there's a pivotal moment when we're going to read about this in, in the worship hour when Christ leaves the realm of eternity leaves the atemporal, spatial realm of eternity, puts on human flesh, comes to time, space, and matter to redeem you and me from sin. And in that context, <clears throat> near the end of his earthly life, Satan indwells Judas. Here's my chance, he thought. The second time, according to Scripture, when he's going to indwell a human being is when he evidently will indwell the Antichrist. And that's in relation to Christ's second advent. He knows that when he sees the signs that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 and 25 begin to unfold, the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments, the abomination of desolations, even signs that he himself is a part of. He's going to say, oh, Jesus said that he's going to come back when you see all these signs. So I know he's getting ready to come back into my backyard, into my playground, so I'm going to get ready again. And what does he do? He indwells the man of sin, the son of perdition, so that he can once again try to defeat him at Armageddon. And, of course, that didn't, uh, that didn't work out too well, as we know. Or it will not work out too well, as we know from Scripture. And then uh, we've already looked at some passages in 1 John that talk about the Antichrist at the end of the first century and the future capital A Antichrist. And then Revelation 13 tells us a lot about the blasphemous beast of the sea who makes war and demands that people worship him during that seven-year period, period of time. What are some names for the Antichrist? Well, uh, I mentioned the little horn already. Daniel 9, he's the prince who shall come. Daniel 11, he's called the willful king. The willful king. Or the desolator. In Daniel 11. The man of sin uh, and son of perdition, as I mentioned. Or the lawless one. Or the beast. You hear this a lot. Uh, the beast and the false prophet. Who can tell me uh, who the beast and the false prophet are according to biblical prophecy? Anybody? By the way, I forgot to mention at the outset that my uh, style is much more lecture, but I love dialogue. So at any time, I don't care if I'm mid-sentence. If you have a question or comment or something was unclear, throw up your hand. And I'll be glad to stop, and we'll talk about it, and we may chase a few rabbits. That's often when the most learning happens, right? And I learn that way as well. So I don't want you to feel like your role in our Bible study hour is just to sit and listen. 
uh, feel free to raise your hand at any time. And as you get to, to know me, uh, you'll hopefully feel more comfortable doing that. I hardly ever make fun of people when they ask a question. So, yes, Fred. So, who are the beast and the false prophet is the question. Anybody know? So, someone said it, it ha doesn't have to be Satan. Indirectly, but... Yeah, so the beast and the false prophet, though, have a specific reference in the book of Revelation to a specific people. And that's the Antichrist is the beast, the false prophet is the second in command. Kind of like the president and the vice president. Now, we'll just leave it at that. But anyway, um, so that, that's the idea. So, yes, as we've said, the Antichrist, the beast, is going to be indwelt by Satan. So it's ultimately Satan's envoy, right? His alter ego, if you will. But it's not Satan himself. Satan is uh, a demon. He's not a human being. And he is in the spiritual realm. Uh, right now, he can come and go from heaven to earth, even though the earth is his domain, according to Scripture. It, will, it rightly belongs to God, and it will one day be returned to God. But right now, the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. But he can come and go to heaven and earth, and we see that in the book of Job. But at the midpoint of the book of Revelation, at the midpoint of the tribulation, He's going to be banished from heaven and only be able to be on earth. And it's just going to get worse and worse and worse uh, when he is constrained to this realm of time, space, and matter. Uh, but so the beast is the false prophet. I mean, the beast is the Antichrist. The false prophet is the second in command, and we'll talk more about that. He's also referred to as the beast of the sea, as you see there uh, on the screen. All right, so back to 1 John. We talked about it is the last hour. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming, but here's what I want you to focus in on. Many Antichrists have come. And in fact, he says, that's how we know it's the last hour. Now think about that. What did I say the last hour was? The present age. You don't see any reference in the Old Testament to a bunch of little a Antichrists running around doing Satan's bidding. Now he was alive and well and has been since he was kicked out of heaven. Don't get me wrong. But you don't see, you see his activity increasing and ratcheting up in the last hour or the present church age. Yeah? Could you speak to Judas as the Antichrist of his age? Yeah, so the question is, I'm just repeating it for the tape. Uh, is Judas, in a sense, the Antichrist of his day? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think, as I mentioned, in every era, every age, Satan has his man of the hour ready. He might have two or three candidates, right? And so in case one gets hit by a truck, and then he says, oh, my, my Antichrist is dead. Now i got to have another one ready in case the rapture happens tomorrow, right? So yeah, I think certainly he was little a Antichrist of his day. But there's one capital A Antichrist who is the man prophesied in Scripture who will take the realm, rule over a one-world government uh, for a seven-year period just prior to Christ's return at the Battle of Armageddon. Okay. Now, one thing I like to point out, and I've done this in other uh, DVDs, but we'll probably touch on it in this series as well, is that we need to make sure we don't say more than the Bible says or less than the Bible says. And, and it always saddens me that so many people in our, in our day uh, have chosen to reject the subject of Bible prophecy altogether, in fact, if you look in, uh, I don't have it on the screen, 
in 2 Peter <coughs> chapter 3, Peter himself, writing, of course, like all writers of Scripture, under the inspiration of the Spirit, so this is the infallible Word of God, says that, no, verse 3, 2 Peter 3, 3, knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days. Now, when's the last days again? Now. Right now. The present church age. Not just now because it's 2020, but now even if we were having this discussion in the year 1200. The church age, everything from the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 to the rapture, is the last days. And Peter says, in the last days scoffers will come. In other words, they weren't there at his day because he was alive when Christ was alive. You know, and Peter wrote his epistle only 31 years after Christ was crucified and resurrected. And so people in the early days of the church still expected him to come back any second because he had said he would. And so they were constantly waking up. I wonder if it could be today. 2,000 years later, we've come kind of blasé about that, and we forget that that prophecy is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. But time sort of makes us dim our hopes a little bit. It shouldn't, but it does. And so Peter predicts that in the last days, scoffers will come, walking according to their own lust, and saying, listen to this, where is the promise of his coming? And that's what we have today. There are a lot of people out there in this great last days of deception we're going to talk about that, who are suggesting that uh, this any attempt to study the second coming of Christ is foolish, it's a waste of time, nobody knows anything about it, why are we, we should study more relevant things. Well, I'm here to tell you there can be nothing more relevant than the study of the return of Christ, especially in these troubling times. So John tells us we know uh, that this is the last hour because... There's a great spirit of deception. And, uh, and so in the coming weeks, uh, we won't start there today. This is a good ending a point. But we're going to talk about five manifestations of the spirit of the Antichrist that I believe have reached new heights today. I'm not here to speculate and, and be sensationalist and try to tell you the rapture is going to happen tomorrow. All I can do is, as Jesus said, look at the sky and discern the weather. And I can look at geopolitical events and say, this could be setting the stage for this. And since we know that Satan's the great deceiver, we know that deception is getting worse and worse, and we'll go back over these verses in the weeks to come. Uh, we know that Jesus warned against a, against a great end times deception. If we see deception increasing, it's fair to say it could be soon. It could be soon. And we want to be ready. And even if the Lord tarries is coming, and he doesn't come back in our day. We have an obligation to walk in the truth, as John says in his epistle. To walk in the truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Right? And so he saved us, and now we are walking by faith after him, and we want to be sensitive to deception. And I believe there is uh, an incredible deception being perpetrated on the world even now, and people are beginning to buy it hook, line, and sinker, even many Christians, and we need to run everything we hear through the grid of Scripture and be sensitive to uh, this great last day's deception. So that's kind of an introduction to this subject of the Antichrist and the spirit of the Antichrist that is prevailing today, and uh, we'll pick up there next week. we got about three or four minutes for questions or comments or thoughts. Anybody? There's kind of a discussion of two Antichrists, right? Um, maybe in Matthew, you have 
So, no, he, the question was, are there two Antichrists mentioned in Matthew? There are not. So Matthew in uh, his gospel only speaks of still the one Antichrist. Um, so if you had a passage, I could actually try to it's, walk through it and explain it. But it's when he's trying to get one to worship the other. Is that the, the false prophet in the, the beast? <laughs> yeah, I'm not familiar with that passage. Maybe it's not in Matthew or somewhere else, but... Um, there's definitely only one Antichrist, and, that, and that's, of course, we saw that from, uh, you know, from John's uh, verse here. Let me put it back up on the screen. So there are multiple beasts in Revelation. That is the beast and the false prophet, and sometimes the false prophet is called the lesser beast. So maybe that's what you're talking about. So if there's multiple beasts, so what, what is that? So right, but there's the technical term beast, and he's the beast of the sea, and the beast, and it's usually capitalized. Uh, but then, as a uh, adjective, the false prophet is also called a beast with a little b. So, but there's only one, and this is what. Uh, notice the definite article. Article here. You have heard that the antichrist is coming. There's only one, and he's prophesied all through Scripture. Daniel, uh, Jeremiah, other passages refer. Uh, to him as the man of sin and so forth, all those designations we gave. So yeah, there's definitely only one, but we'll get into some of those passages that describe his activities because his activities are very much tied to his co-leader, if you will, his second in command, kind of like Batman and Robin. Maybe that's a better analogy than president, <laughs> vice president. Uh, I saw some of you were getting ready to throw something at me when I said president, vice president. But anyway, uh, so, so we'll get into some of that, some of the designations. Good question. Anybody else? Thoughts or questions? Yeah, Does Gary. Does indwell mean controlled by or influencing? So that, the question is, does indwell mean uh, controlled by or influencing? It certainly means both of those things. Um, I hedge my bets a little bit because the text is not as plain. It's explicitly plain about Judas. He indwelt Judas, right? So we know that demons can indwell unbelievers and only unbelievers. So a believer can be influenced by demons, attacked by demons. Demons are prevalent. There's all kinds of spiritual warfare uh, out there, and, uh, and there's designations of demons. Some are bound, some are loosed, ultimately. Some are bound permanently, some are bound temporarily. They'll be released during the tribulation period, so forth and so on. But a demon, and Satan, remember, is the prince of demons, can only indwell an unbeliever. And we know Judas was an unbeliever. As far as the Antichrist, I'm sort of connecting some theological dots from Daniel 8 and 2 Thess 2. It doesn't explicitly say it the way it does about Judas, that Satan will indwell him. But at the very least, he will be uh, empowering him and influencing him and controlling him, to use, that, to use your word. So good, good clarification. Yes? Last question, and then we'll have to shut. You know, I think that's likely, but again, we still don't know, uh, you know, even when exactly. I think, I think if we could, if we said a definite hard yes to that, then it's no longer imminent, right? Because we're not, it's not time for the Feast of Trumpets, so we know the rapture's not going to happen today. And the Bible clearly teaches it's imminent. We have a DVD out there on the Not By Works table uh, that teaches called the Doctrine of Imminency. So, we can't pinpoint it to coincide with any calendar event, but we certainly can say that the events that are in conjunction with the rapture and particularly 
the peace treaty and all of the return to the Jewish sacrificial system and all those things will be in close proximity to it. But what we don't know, again, going back to this chart, is uh, how long this period right here will be. Uh, some scholars, such as Arnie Fruchtenbaum, say it could be several years, you know, between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. I tend to speculate, and again, this is not the Bible, this is just my speculation, that it's probably months. Um, but, you know, if the rapture happens and, it, and it's a couple years, then, then all of these events could coincide with the Feast of Trumpets, even if the rapture didn't happen at a calendar time in conjunction with the Feast of Trumpets. So we can't say that it, it does or it destroys eminency. So, but good question. All right, well, let's pray, and then we'll take a break as we get ready for worship. Father, thank you again for the privilege of studying your word. Lord, may it edify and strengthen our faith, not scare us or discourage us, but encourage us, because you are God, you're in full control, and we know who wins in the end. Lord, we ask your blessing now as we dismiss. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.